Hello, hello. Welcome to the Field Architecture Podcast, a podcast about architecture and the real world. My name is René Boer and I'm joined by, for the first time actually, Daphne Bakker, also part of uh, Field Architecture. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and my other co-host, Charlie Clemos. Hello. Hey. Charlie, you have been working on this uh, for quite a bit. What is it about? So um, as the title probably already suggests, this episode's about the uh, Louvre Museum in Paris, world-famous museum, um, one of the first museums in the world, and the equally world-famous African-American artist, musician, uh, and general powerhouse, Beyonce. The Connection is a video that Beyonce filmed in 2018, uh, Ape Shit. And uh, that video takes place in the Louvre Museum. And um, so I wanted to address that kind of connection between a, a piece of architecture, a building, um, a very kind of resonant building and a figure in pop culture, a very central figure in contemporary pop culture. Great. And this, uh, so this song and this music video came out like uh, two years ago, but yeah. why do you think it's relevant to talk about it now? Well, I mean, I think it generally is like it remains a, an ongoing clash that, that we're trying to address within Feld Architecture between how buildings relate to the real world. It's in the title of our podcast. And we're trying to kind of think of ways of bringing to light the fact that architecture is this concrete manifestation of these relations. So it's like a useful way of understanding various um, political, economic and cultural processes that happen in society. Great. Yeah. And Daphne, um, so why do you think that like it's interesting to talk about uh, pop culture on, a, on an architecture podcast? Maybe adding to what, what Charlie was already saying. Well, I think uh, how most of us start actually engaging with bigger ideas is through pop culture. Because, yeah, who actually has uh, access to, let's say, academic literature or to these institutions like the Louvre? Um, where we start engaging uh, with a true pop culture, like true, for instance, Beyonce's video clip, but maybe also true scenes in movies that are set in the Louvre. So um, if we want to reach more people, if we want to start thinking more critically and also include more people, then we should also engage with the ways that they are introduced to either concepts or spaces. But there are also limits. Pop culture is, in a essence, well, quite shallow. So how do you then access the broad appeal of pop culture and inspire people or trigger their curiosity to delve deeper? Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, It's also interesting you're saying that the, the Louvre is not a, a place that is easy accessed to some. And uh, I think that's a very interesting statement because on the one hand, you can just uh, show up and buy a ticket. But there's also maybe something, I mean, that's probably something that's going to be discussed in more detail in, in, the, mm -hmm. uh, in the episode. But uh, to some extent, it's also the building that is uh, qu quite accessible, maybe financially and in terms of uh, and, and physically, maybe. But there's something more in its representation that makes it inaccessible to a lot of people. Well, maybe I was thinking more, um, well, in a sense, more personally, because I'm from a small country. And like most people um, from Suriname have never been to the Louvre. I think it's a, a, a privilege. Yeah. yeah kind of people who do get to go. Like it's every, actually mm. almost everyone who gets to go to the Louvre is in, in some way privileged. They're at least middle class. They can go afford to go to Paris and buy the ticket. Right. Yeah. And okay, still it's millions of people, but there's still billions of people who do not have the same option. Yeah. And you're saying that like maybe uh, there are billions of people who have seen the Apeshit video probably. I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's much more accessible. Like um, internet is now pretty widespread. People have smartphones, like even people who, who are not middle class. Yeah. And they can then see and interact like this maybe their first introduction to the Louvre. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that as well in the fact that how yeah, how the internet has changed these things. But still there are these kind of pop cultural objects which just like they they present a window into like just a completely different world it's like a portal into a kind of uh, a different dimension pop culture can still do that it can bring together very very like accessible sounds and yeah. aesthetics but also then insert rich details that, that that you know allow you to excavate further and further and 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 through that you know become a kind of slightly more empowered through that excavation. Yeah, it's very interesting. But at the same time, it can also like destabilize very uh, stable meanings and representations of existing culture, right? Mm -hmm. So it can also critique in a very interesting way, I think. 
I think this is what I was talking about with like architecture, you know, that like, yeah, it, like architecture doesn't do anything. Something that Kiefer Dunn spoke about in the last podcast that we did it's like a hieroglyph through which these different processes um interrelate and you know it is a site of power uh but it's the congelation of these relations you know it's a so so it is the space where you can start challenging these things yeah interesting um and Daphne I was also wondering like what did you think when you saw the the video for the first time actually well I'm uh a modern dance lover. I'm not an expert, but whenever there's like choreography and Beyonce involved, I do think about the minor scandal of her. Um, but, well, basically she, um, a, f- a few years ago, she was accused by two Flemish choreographers, but mainly uh, one, Anna Teresa de Keerschmaker, for plagiarizing her dance. And then the ironic thing about of the apeshit video is that she employed one of the choreographers, Sidi Ladvi Sharkvi. Forgive me if I mispronounce the name. So that was to me like a, a proof like Beyonce's power. She in the past plagiarized uh, dances by a certain choreographer and then hired him to do the choreography. Also the fact that she could just like which pop star would be able to like shut down basically the Louvre to make a video. It's probably just her and maybe Madonna. I don't know. Who else could it have been? On that point, like what I was saying about, you know, the fact that you kind of excavate and more and more kind of things come up. um, uh, It was interesting hearing, Renee, you talk about a totally different series of events came to mind as soon as you kind of engaged with this sort of surrounding the Musée d'Orsay, which is just across the river from the Louvre. And it's interesting how these tensions reoccur yeah. throughout the museum spaces and these kind of cultural institutions and these buildings. So it'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, very that. interesting, yeah. So I was, I was basically referring to, indeed, the Musée d'Orsay, the, the famous museum on the other side of the Seine uh, in Paris, who had uh, an exhibition um, uh, planned. And one of the paintings they were going to show was um, Le Jeune Noir à l'Épée, or the, the Young Black Boy uh, with the Sword, that was going to be shown in the exhibition. And they invited an upcoming... French a theater maker and musician, Abdel Malik, to uh, respond actually to the exhibition uh, and, it, and also to shoot a music video, uh, to write a new song and shoot a music video uh, in front of the, in the painting, in the museum space. And he did that and it became pretty famous in, in France, I think mostly, uh, didn't have the global outreach of uh, what Beyonce did. But what, what I really liked about it is that it also became a book and a theater show that is like still in theaters actually right now in Paris. It's really, really popular. So uh, rather than just this, this one song that is like more on a, on a, global, in a global YouTube space, it's something that maybe has more roots in local communities also. Mm. Um, and I think that also brings local communities to relate to the Musée d'Orsay and bring new meanings to it, but also... Um, yeah, shatter existing meanings and a- appropriate the space in a in a more direct way on the scale of the city. And I think that was uh, that was quite interesting. That's nice because, yeah. like, um, one thing that I didn't get to talk about in the uh, in the podcast, um, it's just sort of to goes to show like how much like these things are happening, you know, like just within one city. So you know, we're talking about the Louvre in Paris, Musée d'Orsay in Paris. And another thing that actually sparked off my kind of exploration into this is the French rap group PNL, who um, have in various situations sort of used Paris and particular sort of striking locations to appropriate spaces of the establishment or spaces that people from their background wouldn't normally have access to. Um, I'm thinking in particular of uh, a song released 10 months ago, uh, Oh Day Day where they're on top of the Eiffel Tower. Um, yeah, and just in general, like, I, I think it's good to say this podcast has taken quite a long time to make, so there's been, like, various things that have come up. I mean, obviously, it was almost two years ago that the Beyoncé video uh, came about. Um, this is probably a good point to say that these things take quite a long time, and um, before we get to the episode, it would be quite nice to just say very briefly that if you like what we're doing and you like the kind of podcasts we're putting together then think about giving us some money um it really really helps because um at the moment we're mostly doing them out of our own kind of passion for the particular subject and and it takes a long time um but anyway uh yeah. fieldarchitecture.com slash donate <laughs> 
So we have been uh, rambling on for uh, for a while now. Maybe you should start listening to the, to the actual episode. Um, Charlie, is there anything that uh, listeners need to know before we move on? Yeah, I think it's probably quite good to just um, urge you all to, at least at some point in the episode, maybe now, uh, pause the podcast and and have a have a watch of of all the videos we we talked about the the ape shit video first of all and the genre ADP exactly yeah. and uh, and PNL Odede um, the they're they're all really great and um, yeah do that and then I think it will make a little bit more sense the the rest of the episode great Daphne would you like to to add something well no. listen and enjoy I had a great time listening to it <laughs> yeah okay great cool have a good listen. On Saturday, June 16th, 2018, Beyonce and Jay-Z released Everything Is Love, their surprise joint album as The Carters. That same day, they also put out a video for the album's lead single, Ape Shit. The video takes place in the empty halls of the Louvre Museum, with the couple, and Beyonce in particular, performing in front of several significant paintings and sculptures in the museum's vast collection. Needless to say, There was a big response from the internet in the hours that followed, with dozens of hastily written articles and Twitter takes attempting to unpack the video's various references to colonial history and contemporary African-American culture, while exploring the overall significance of two of the world's most visible and successful black cultural figures, appropriating a building that is so synonymous with Western imperialism. This episode is about buildings and power. It's about how a building like the Louvre comes to be invested with power, and how its location, design, and the way it's used help reinforce the traditional order of things. But it's also about how a seemingly immutable marriage of social and architectural order can be challenged by the sheer defiant presence of the historically excluded doing something new in that space. With some time passed since the video's release, we'll be reflecting on its impact on the Louvre, what it expresses about the museum's position in contemporary society, and what it portends for the future of museum spaces in general. In a bid to understand how the Louvre came to be such an imposing symbol of power in the first place, we'll also be delving into its architectural history, which has long placed it at the very heart of the French state's imperial ambitions. But before we get to all that, Let's go back to the day the video was released. One of the people whose response to the video travelled furthest was Sarah Honey Young, artist, creative director, and founder of the portrait and interview series American Woman. Honey's Twitter thread and subsequent L article explored what it means to centre black art and artists within an institution they've historically been omitted from. In the article, she references Deanna Lawson's call made in an interview with Time magazine, for people of colour to claim spaces within institutions like the Louvre. With a history of certain voices not being included in the history of art, Lawson says, it is time to claim that space, to have bodies who might not have been celebrated within the institution. Here's Honey explaining her reaction further. And I thought it shit. I thought it was absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> like, it's, it is just, like, stunning to look at. I immediately was on Twitter about it. Um, I immediately connected the video to uh, Deanna Lawson, who is um, one of my favorite photographers. She actually just had an exhibition a couple months ago at the Carnegie Museum of Art here in Pittsburgh. So I was able to go and interact with that. I actually took photos of a performance art installation within her exhibition. Um, so I just had her work was already in my head. Um, so when I saw the ancient video, particularly the image that made the cover of the woman braiding the man's hair in front of with the Mona Lisa in the background, it just reminded me of her photography so much. Um, and just like this extreme sort of like 
honestly, which is a very black experience. I know that people all over the world braid each other's hair, but the intimacy that is implied through just that image with a black woman braiding a black man's hair in that way, within that context, within the Louvre, it was just very interesting and powerful to me. Um, I did get quoted in like Vulture or something like that. Like they linked to my tweet, a couple other publications linked to my tweet. Uh, but none of them asked me to write anything <laughs> about it. So when Elle reached out to me uh, to write about it, you know, just expound on my tweets, which was talking about blackness as art and Deanna Lawson, which is something that I just have used that phrase about my own work before. Um, I was definitely down. I did notice a lot of pieces going up immediately. And I first told myself, don't read them because I didn't want to be swayed in any way. But then I actually did end up reading them because it was very important to me to make sure my perspective was unique. And I didn't see anybody else writing about it from the perspective that I did. Now, somebody else could have. I didn't see it, though, just particularly like what would this what is the actual relationship between the art and what's happening? And more so, what would happen if this was within a different context, within a different institution, a different museum? Like I wanted to kind of think about that as well. More than claiming spaces. Honey also questions here the very notion that the Louvre is even somewhere that black artists need to turn to in order to legitimate their cultural output. Black artists claiming space with visual art that centers black people, both as creators within institutions they have historically been emitted from, and also within spaces they carve out for themselves, is a practice she calls blackness as art. What I, I guess what I call blackness as art, it's pretty cut and dry. Um, I do think that there is something very beautiful about black people in general, not just like our physical beauty, but our resilience, um, our ability to take both joy and hardship and make like literal art forms out of it. Like hip hop basically was born out of storytelling, um, and just talking about like a day-to-day experience uh, within like very poverty-stricken neighborhoods of like Black and Latino uh, kids. There's actually a Jay-Z line. Um, he says, put some colored girls in the MoMA. And I don't know why that line always stuck out to me. He basically was talking about like the beauty of his wife. <laughs> but it just reminded me like they're really... To this day, at least in like these storied, long-term, hundreds and hundreds of year old institutions of art, which are considered to be the beacons of art, there's not really a lot of imagery that looks like me or my ancestors or my people, except maybe in terms of like bondage or slavery, which I'm not ashamed to be descended from enslaved Africans, but I also think there's just so much more (laughs) Um, that we could be depicted as. And there's so much more that we are because there's brilliant, brilliant Black artists out there who still aren't really represented in these kind of institutions. So Blackness as art is not only like us as a people and our beauty and our contributions to the world, but also just our aesthetic and our contributions being represented directly by us as makers, by us as creators, by us as artists. I want to see... I want to see us represented, but I also, and this is where the nuance comes in, like nuance is one of my favorite words when I talk about this specifically. I also don't want us to be dependent on looking towards something like the Louvre or even the Carnegie Museum of Art. You know, when I work with them a lot, I don't want us to think that those are the places that have to accept us. Uh, that have to legitimize us in order for our art to be worthy or really for us to be worthy as people. So that's the conundrum that comes in. Another person who responded to the video was Heidi Herrera, an art historian currently based at the University of California, whose Twitter thread exploring the art historical themes also went viral in the days that followed the video's release. Here she is talking to me about what brought her to respond to the video in the first place. When I first saw the video, I was in Mexico City at the time with my tia, and I didn't really have access to, like, internet or anything, and my best friend had texted me um, saying, like, 
they just released Ape Shit. They just released the album. Like, you have to, like, listen to this right now. And so once I got back to my hotel room, it was, like, midnight. And I saw the Ape Shit video first because he's like, look at the Ape Shit video first. You're going to have an orgasm. And I was like, I don't know what this means. Like, why are you telling me this? And I watched it and I was like, oh, my God. Like, this is insane. I was just, like, so excited. But I couldn't get in, like, contact with him to, like, talk about it. So I made the Twitter thread so he would see it. I asked Heidi to explain the wider discussion she drew upon for a subsequent article she wrote for Bustle magazine, in which she broke down the various art historical references contained in the video and situated them in their contemporary context. It was interesting going through and reading what everyone had to say afterwards. Um, there was just a lot of references to modern dance that I didn't necessarily get that people were sharing or talking about or um, ideas of colonialism. And, you know, I think a lot I wasn't necessarily thinking initially about um, at least to the extent that I might now about the museum as a colonial space and what's the meaning of space and why they hosted it in the Louvre versus using the Whitney or the Guggenheim um, like Solange did for her an O2 series. So it really showed me a ton of different perspectives, but I think the biggest point, and this is what I had in the article that I wrote on it, um, was the idea of accessibility because I did not realize how inaccessible Um, a lot of these references were or a lot of the nuances of these uh, references were because art history in itself is an elitist discipline. I just randomly fell into it because I really love art and history and it worked well for me. Um, And it wasn't what I was expecting to study at all. So I think that was one of the biggest things that I took away from it was this idea of accessibility and inaccessibility that the Carters challenged by staging the apeshit video in the Louvre and opening up this like flood of conversation about it. I mean, you said that you've been there. I'd just be interesting to know what you kind of, how you read the Louvre as that French colonial space of the kind of 19th century, especially with with reference to the architecture and the way that the art works with the architecture and, and that kind I of thing. I mean, when I went to the Louvre previously, I mean, I went with my sister um, about like a year and a half ago over the summer and it really, it sells you a really grand narrative. It, it's kind of sells you this idea of grandeur and even though I am aware and was aware of how overwhelmingly white these spaces are, there is no one who looks like me. There is, I mean, there's a reason why I love contemporary art museums and why I really enjoy going there for my own personal um, kind of enjoyment of art. But when you are in Paris, you go to the Louvre. I think it's interesting because I, for this movie, I want to look back at what photos I ended up taking while there. And I took a photo with the Nike of Samothrace, with the Mona Lisa, with the Venus de with the Sphinx, right? Like those three like icons, which are in the um, video, like I, me and my sister have selfies or photos that we took of each other of those objects. Um, And then also because I do like the Napoleonic period and um, those paintings produced, I also have a few photos of those. So I think it's really interesting looking at the apeshit video because in some ways it kind of reframed my perception of the Louvre because it brought to the forefront these issues of colonialism. It I mean it took the Raft of the Medusa and the Portrait of a Negress by uh, Benoist and the Wedding at Cana that's opposite the Mona Lisa by um, Veronese. So Veronese's um, Wedding at Cana is opposite the Mona Lisa. And that is one of the paintings where she they took a lot of the images of um, slaves or black individuals who um, are actually in the Louvre. Um, those paintings have them as the subject, or are they are kind of more essential figures. But it was really interesting just to like see that reframed because that isn't, even though it's something I notice when I'm looking at images in classes or when I'm looking at general images, I do take note of, oh, you know, there aren't any, or more so you take note if there is a person of color in these figures, right? Like it kind of conditions you to see this as the norm. And I think that's kind of what apeshit in a lot of ways did for me. It really kind of clicked that weight. They're trying to frame a narrative in a specific way of Western history of history in general that is objective, right? I feel like there's a variety of like assumptions that these museums are kind of built upon and that they perpetuate. Um, and I think the Louvre 
even though it obtained so much of its work from Napoleon's military campaigns, right, especially in Africa and Egypt, I mean, they have one of the largest collections of Egyptian art because of all the looting that Napoleon did, right? And also, like, the, the Louvre was built on the systematic looting of not only non-Western countries, but on Western Europe as well, right? So, um, but this isn't discussed at all. And the appearance of Napoleon in the Louvre is actually very small. There's only a very few works where he's actually there. He's kind of like a presence that we don't really speak about um, or that isn't necessarily physically apparent, even though it's very tangible in the very creation of the Louvre and the structure of the Louvre. And I think also in the idea of the Louvre, the idea that the Louvre is an educational institution, that it is a place where artifacts um, that are treasured by everyone across the world are held, um, like the idea that they have the right to control those objects or the way that they're presented in a narrative that they say is true, but doesn't actually engage with a lot of the violence of colonial past. Heidi brings up a fundamentally important aspect of the Louvre Museum. It's incredibly violent, yet frequently under-acknowledged past as an instrument of colonial power. Perhaps more than any other building in the world, the Louvre's architectural history is utterly bound up with violence, power and control, stretching back even before Napoleon's colonial adventures and at least as far back as the Middle Ages. To understand the remarkable impact of the apeshit video, and to understand the kind of building and the kind of history that the video so decisively challenges, we need to take a brief detour and delve deeper into this history. Where we're standing right now is the, is the L'Arche du Carrousel, which was one of the two victory arches uh, built by Napoleon I to celebrate his victories. That's Christopher Dickey, world correspondent for the Daily Beast and a longtime resident of Paris. Back in 2016, Christopher wrote an article for the Daily Beast about the Louvre, and particularly its western annex, known as the Tuileries Palace. I went to meet Christopher in Paris, and as he just explained there, we were at that moment stood a couple of hundred metres from the museum's central courtyard, taking shelter from the rain beneath the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel. I mean, the thing to understand about the the, uh, Louvre is that it, it was built, as it were, by accretion, It was originally, uh, back in the Middle Ages, uh, a big walled fortress that was meant to block traffic coming up the Seine, um, especially during the time of the Crusades when the kings of France were off trying to conquer the Holy Land. Uh, They wanted to be able to protect the waterway of the Seine. And you can still see, if you go down in the basement of the Louvre, you can still see the foundations of the old fortress which of course don't look anything like what you see when you look at the Louvre today. Then you had uh, it built piece by piece uh, for centuries, and it was really a mess because uh, in the, up into the, uh, at least into the 17th century, people who wanted to be near the king before the king decided to move to Versailles, Louis XIV decided to move to Versailles, Uh, would try and build in the area that is now the courtyard. And they did build, and there were houses there. So it was like a wealthy slum in the middle of this big courtyard. So no no planning laws? uh, Very very little planning. If you could build it, you built it. If you had the money and the contacts, you did it. This situation persisted until the rule of Caterina de' Medici, the powerful mother of three French kings during the 16th century who decided that the Louvre was not fit for purpose and began to build a new palace that would close off the western entrance to the complex. A generation later, another French queen and scion of the Medici family, Maria de' Medici, oversaw the construction of a tree-lined path extending from the Tuileries Gardens and out through the fields facing the palace, which would form the bare bones of Paris's famous Axe Historique. Slowly but surely, the surroundings of the Louvre were taking on an increasingly neat geometric form. If you opened the front door, as it were, of the Tuileries Palace, you would have looked straight out uh, in the the 19th century, you would have looked straight out at the Arc de Triomphe. Okay. And after, I think, the 1830s, 
you would have seen the obelisk, more or less, as we see it now. It looks, actually, as you look down, it looks like sort of a, a surveyor's transit with this obelisk standing straight up and you see it framed perfectly by the Arc de Triomphe. It, that lined up perfectly with the front door as the main entrance of the Tuileries Palace. And then there was a back entrance that came out and you would have looked at yeah. this arch. As Christopher explained to me, all this geometry served a very specific purpose for the kings of France as they sought to extend their power over more and more territory. Certainly the kings of France after uh, Louis XIV, but even before, had a very strong idea of symmetry and order and controlling their environment. So that's why the gardens are so spectacular at Versailles. That's why the Tuileries gardens were eventually designed this way. That's why there's such a marked contrast between what are seen as French-style gardens and English gardens, which are a little bit allowed to run riot and yeah. feel more like nature, sort of as hidden, it were. Hidden ruins and things like it, that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Well, here, if you go to the, uh, for instance, the Parc Monceau, uh, there are all these little folies. There's a little pyramid, there's a little... Uh, Greek temple, you know, ruin of a Greek temple, all of which is phony, but all of which was something to contemplate uh, and look at history and feel the order that mankind imposed on his environment. The symmetry and order that was imposed upon the centre of Paris was meant as a display of the French monarchy's absolute control over their capital. But as Christopher pointed out to me, Paris ended up proving too unruly for the French monarchs to tame. For, I think, more than 40 years, um, the power of the state was concentrated around the king, the Sun King, Louis XIV, and he made the nobles, anybody who wanted to plea with that power, had to go out to what was originally his hunting lodge at Versailles, a huge, spectacular palace where he had complete control with virtually no urban surround at all. Uh, his uh, grandson, Louis XV, moved back to Paris and moved back to the Tuileries Palace. And the Tuileries Palace became the symbol of the monarchy and of power in Paris and in France. And ironically and tragically, from his point of view, when the revolution began, after the storming of the Bastille in 1789, uh, Louis, Louis XVI and Marie-Antoinette, his wife, decided to move back into Paris to the Tuileries Palace. Rookie mistake. And that was a fatal mistake. They weren't executed in the, uh, within the grounds? It no, was in the, the, first, the first use of the guillotine was in this square, more or less where we're standing, in the Large de Carousel. Uh, and then it was subsequently moved out to Place de la Concorde, where you see now the obelisk, and that was where hundreds and hundreds of people were beheaded. As if the Louvre wasn't already steeped in the power play between the French state and the French people, it's also here that the guillotine took its first victims during the early days of the French Revolution. As we move from the 18th to the 19th century, France oscillates from monarchy to republic to empire and back again. However, one continuity throughout this time is the ever-increasing symbolic power of the Louvre, and particularly the Tuileries Palace. From the Tuileries Palace, a perfect straight line stretched all the way to the Arc de Triomphe and beyond, forming the Axe Historique of Paris, a spectacular display of the French state's control over its domain, and surely one of the most impressive expressions of Enlightenment rationalism imposing itself on the unruly city. Now, up to this point, unless you've been paying particularly close attention to the discussion between me and Christopher, you will have probably missed the hint that the Tuileries Palace no longer exists. As Christopher writes in the opening line of his article, there is an enormous void in the heart of Paris. We'll get to how this happened later in the episode. First, I asked Christopher why it happened. What were the conditions that led to the Tuileries' destruction? 
we're going to get into the end of the life of the jewelries in our chronology, mm-hmm, right? Sure. Um, so it survives the upheavals of the first French Revolution. Not only did it survive the upheavals of the revolution, it then became the palace of the Emperor Napoleon I mm. he, because he adopted certain symbols of the monarchy to impose himself on France and, as he saw it, to impose himself on Europe. Or maybe he saw it as liberating Europe, but anyway. Yeah, and, and then it becomes even more consolidated as the sort of center, specifically, of the kind of absolutely. symmetry well, of Paris. Absolutely. Right? Look, everybody... There were, two, there were two things going on. One is that the Tuileries itself became the center of authority in Paris. It had been the center of royal authority, and it became then the center of imperial authority under Napoleon I, and then later under Napoleon III, or Louis Napoleon, as he was originally called, the nephew of Napoleon I. That was in the mid-1850s. And for a little over, well, almost 20 years, uh, Napoleon III concentrated all imperial majesty in that palace. But at the same time, decades before, in fact, under Louis XVI, the Louvre itself, the old Louvre, had become a museum and had begun to be open to the public. Uh, And under Napoleon I, as he was going to Egypt, as he was going to Italy, as he was conquering large parts of Europe, he was also looting the hell out of them and bringing all this artwork back. So even now, if you go to Venice, the horses uh, on top of St. Mark's, he stole those, those are here. I mean, we're not talking about looting Africa, yeah. that too, yeah, yeah. But, or looting Egypt, that too. But he was looting Europe. And a lot of the art that's in the Louvre was looted from other countries in, or taken from yeah. other countries in Europe. But, you know, there were, big time, there were times when a lot of the population of France was, you know, very much on board with imperial plunder. Yeah. We are the great French, we do this, we deserve this, and we have a greater culture than anybody else, and what the hell, the Italians don't know how to take care of things, and the Egyptians, well, it's all buried under sand, so why shouldn't we take it all? And they did. As the home of this imperial plunder, the Louvre went from being a symbol not just of the French state's power at home, but also of its dominance abroad especially in the cultural realm. This helped it acquire an image of power that's gone practically unrivaled in modern history. We have the Louvre as the center of art and culture, not just for France, but for the world. And then you have this imperial palace, especially for uh, Napoleon III, uh, this imperial palace, the Tuileries, and it is the center of the power of an empire that stretches down into Africa, halfway around the world, all corners of the globe, sometimes with little islands, sometimes with big territories, and was constantly expanding its territory into the rest of Europe. So, yeah, it was a center of power. Well, I mean, Downing Street doesn't compare, really. No, no. There's nothing, there's almost nothing, maybe you could say the White House in the United States. That, that was what I had in or mind. Or the Kremlin in Moscow. Yeah. But short of them, there's really no other place that compared to what the Tuileries represented. Yeah. Certainly the Elysee Palace now, the presidential palace here, which is over on the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, that doesn't begin to represent the kind of power and ambition and imperial ambition that uh, the Tuileries Palace represented. As Christopher already mentioned, Napoleon III, the original Napoleon's nephew, sought to assert his authority over Paris, and by extension France, by situating the Tuileries as the centrepiece of a dramatic reconfiguration of the city. For this, he ordered the prefect of Seine, Baron Osman, to lead a huge public works project which, among other things, extended the geometric order established by the Axe Historique across much of Paris's right bank. The upheavals this caused contributed directly to Napoleon III's downfall. Napoleon III wanted to impose himself on the city. Uh, It's not only that he had the Tuileries Palace, he wanted to make Paris um, fit his grand designs, which is one reason that this perspective, this long perspective, this axis, what's called the Grand Axis of Paris, uh, became very important. 
and it had influence all over the world. The mall in Washington, D.C., which was designed by L'Enfant, a Frenchman, was based very much on a similar idea, grand perspectives that convey the idea of power and authority. It's sort of like the direct eye, isn't it? The, you know, that you stand and you look and you're kind of seeing everything. Sure, line, you know, right? it's like my, I'm lord of all that I survey, <laughs> right? That's what, that, is, that is the idea here. Um, uh, although it did begin sort of as pretty gardens. By the time you had the Arc de Triomphe, which Napoleon started, by the time you had the Arc de Triomphe, that is an assertion. That is a huge building, especially for that time. And that is an assertion, not only of victories, but of authority. One more thing before we get to the destruction of the Tuileries Palace. I asked Heidi what effect the apeshit video has on the very carefully orchestrated assertion of power that is still conveyed by the Louvre and its surroundings. The breaking of space in the apeshit video was really important because it reframed how we enter the Louvre and how we participate in the Louvre space. Um, I mean, I think within the Louvre space, there's the obvious periodization, right? So, like, what artwork do you see first? Um, Like, do you go into, we see the classical Greco antiquity art, right? Is that the progenitor of the French empire? Do we then move and see the neoclassical art, the art that, you know, French makers produced? And, like, where is Egyptian art, right? Like, is is it in a sequestered hallway that you have to very intentionally leave the general flow of museums space to enter. I mean, most of these objects that are in these museums were never created for museums, right? So museums, and I, they bring together objects that were never meant to be seen together. Um, and I think apeshit challenges that, uh, or at least puts pressure on that truth, which is something that I think museums often occlude or um, don't emphasize that they aren't telling everyone, look, we're constructing this narrative of truth. You know, like, this is one idea of truth. Like, oftentimes I feel like they're not very open about it. There's this idea that this you're entering this temple of art, right? You know, the, the way that they're built, it's like, a, at least the Louvre, it's, you know, it's like this Greco-Roman temple almost. It's almost spiritual. So you go in and you're supposed to have this experience. And I think there's this idea, too, of when you enter a museum space, it's almost... there's this secret um, or these silent rules of how you're supposed to behave, right? Like, you're not supposed to get too close to their artwork. You're not supposed to, um, you know, be too loud. You're supposed to be quiet and silently engage. And I think by breaking that space with having such a vibrant and lively celebration of blackness um, and such a celebration of music and joy and success and their own success. I think that's a lot of the power of the video within the Louvre space. Um, I do also think that the way that they engage with their artwork is very intentional. So by positioning Beyonce in front of the coronation of Napoleon, right, taking the place of a male emperor who's crowning his female consort at the time, the Empress Josephine, and just the idea of um, wearing different nude fabrics that actually match these women's bodies and their actual pigmentation and having her there without any male figure counting herself king and queen. One effect of these insertions is to challenge the Louvre's imposing expression of power, thereby emphasizing the fact that the Louvre's architecture is not inherently powerful. Rather, it's invested with an image of power through relations occurring in society at large. People give this image its power, but they can also choose to take it away, which is something that became all too apparent when the people of Paris took control of the city in 1871 and momentarily made the Louvre, this immense symbol of power, suddenly very vulnerable indeed. Here's Christopher again, explaining how the downfall of Napoleon III and the rise of the Paris Commune led to a situation in which the Louvre and all its treasures came frighteningly close to going up in flames. Napoleon III kept trying to extend his power. At the same time, the rising power by the 1860s was Prussia under Bismarck. And finally, you had a situation where a war was started and Napoleon III was in no position to win. Mm. And his great army, 
was uh, defeated at Sedan in an absolutely humiliating defeat. He was brought down uh, and the city rose up. It said, you know, enough of this, you've got us into this disastrous war. The city was besieged by the Prussians, so people were starting to starve. I mean, it was a brutal uh, siege. And you had this uprising that was, of course, the Commune. And during the Commune, there was an effort by many of the parties involved to try and eliminate uh, imperial symbols. So, although it was not this, there is an idea that the Tuileries Palace was mobbed by the communal, that they came down in masses and burned it down, which would be a great scene in a movie, but that isn't actually what happened. There was one man who had risen through the ranks to have a sort of self-declared rank uh, in the communal forces, who, with a couple of accomplices, got into the Tuileries Palace, went from room to room with the buckets of pitch, and lit the whole damn thing on fire. Mm. And it didn't burn to the ground, but it got burned out completely. And the main architectural feature of the Tuileries Palace was a big dome over a suspended staircase right in the middle. In the fire, that collapsed in, and all the interiors were ruined. When the uh, Tuileries Palace was burned, it was connected by wooden bridges to the Louvre, and it was a huge fire. Uh, nobody came, basically, who could begin to put it out. By then, the government troops were moving in from Versailles. And to they break had the commune. To break the commune, to bring down the commune. And they had moved, actually, they were billeted in the Tuileries Gardens. Mm. So they were looking right at the Tuileries as it was being burned. They were not supposed to interfere. But one of the senior officers there said, well, wait a minute, this is going to go, it's going to hit the Louvre. And then these are the national treasures of France and of Europe and lots of other places. And what, what's going to happen? The communal had occupied uh, the street that runs along the Seine um, outside the Louvre. And it was very hard to, they had, so the military had to fight to get in there. Meanwhile, uh, Henri Barbet de Jouy, who was the curator of the Louvre and his staff had stayed in the Louvre all the way through the siege of Paris and the bombing of Paris or the shelling of Paris and all the way through the commune protecting the treasures inside. Now it was threatened by fire. And they really thought they were going to lose the whole thing if the fire swept through the interior of the Louvre. So the soldiers working with Balbet de Jouy got up into the wooden bridges and, and hacked them away and, and brought down the wooden bridges. They, they had a bucket brigade bringing water in. They broke the roadblocks along the uh, street that runs outside the uh, Louvre. Uh, and I'm sure it was fairly bloody uh, fighting. They broke them with bayonets initially. Uh, but they saved all the treasures, basically, that were inside the Louvre. Uh, and there are a couple of plaques uh, in the Louvre that nobody ever looks at, yeah. that Which are devoted some to of the them. most important yeah, people. It's, it's, they saved world history right that day, yeah. but nobody remembers them. World history was saved that day. But despite the rescue of the Louvre and its artworks, Paris suffered a massive disruption of its symbolic harmony with the destruction of the Tuileries. As Christopher points out in his article, Few people who visit the Louvre now appear to acknowledge the absence of its Western annex. Yet it was a matter of great significance to architect I.M. Pei during his famous 1980s redesign. The glass pyramid he introduced in the museum's courtyard, which has since served as the museum's entrance, has had the unfortunate side effect of highlighting the asymmetry between the axe historique and the remaining annexes of the Louvre that it springs from. This brings us back to the problem of architecture's role in reinforcing the centralizing tendencies of the imperial French state. While it's hard not to see the torching of the Tuileries as an unforgivably destructive act committed by a bitter anarchist in the dying days of the Commune, perhaps there was something worthy in its essential impulse to disrupt the imposing representation of symbolic order invested in the Tuileries by a long line of French rulers. On this point, it's worth sparing an extra thought for the communards, since their history contains some surprising echoes in the apeshit video, in particular in their attempts to challenge the meanings of buildings and structures 
that had hitherto resonated as symbols of the established social order. In her book The Emergence of Social Space, Kristin Ross writes that the communards who occupied the Hotel de Ville, or who tore down the Vendôme Column in 1871, were not at home in the centre of Paris. Rather, they were occupying enemy territory, the circumscribed proper place of the dominant social order. Ross then makes reference to the Situationist International, a revolutionary leftist organisation of artists, writers and intellectuals who emerged from the post-war French avant-garde. She says that the Paris Commune, however brief, provides an example of what the Situationists have called a détournement, defined as the use of the elements or terrain of the dominant social order to one's own ends, for a transformed purpose. Détournement, Ross explains, has no other place but the place of the other. It plays on imposed terrain, and its tactics are determined by the absence of a proper place. All this should sound familiar in the description Heidi has given of the apeshit video's impact. Here she is again. So I think there's this level of quotation that isn't just a rehabilitation of the Louvre space, but it's also inserting um, their own history. I think that they are in some ways making steps to decolonializing the space. Um, because they're not just destroying these physical symbols of power, but they are engaging with their colonial histories and narratives. I think it's really interesting. I feel like these images and these artworks have this really strong potential to be activated. I think they're engaging with a lot of artwork created by um, this generation of Black artists, um, whether it's Faith Ringgold or Carrie Mae Weems or um, Kaheen Wiley, and a lot of these artists are in museum spaces, but they're not in the museum spaces at the Louvre. Um, and they're bringing those references through what they're doing, right? I mean, I, I know they're starting a conversation, and I think they're engaging in conversation with the Louvre um, by using its symbolic potential to engage with their own histories and by telling their own stories, right? Because, I mean... I see them as breaking boundaries and breaking genres in the art world, right? It's not just architecture, painting, sculpture, like, anymore, you know? Like, there are so many more uh, mediums that people are using to produce art, and I think that people have always used to produce art, but I think those uh, strict categories are finally being broken down. But, like, looking at apeshit as an artwork itself, it's privileging oral history, right? It's privileging their voices, um, it's actively engaging with colonialist history and with current issues of police brutality. I also asked Honey to comment on her experiences with art institutions as a black woman and how apeshit sits within wider efforts to appropriate and disrupt these institutions. I have a bit of personal experience with sort of navigating around uh, those issues but I have a huge perspective on it just by uh, um, being somebody who's really involved in the art world, but also feeling like I'm not really in the art world. It's just a, still a very like sort of divisive place, I guess. It's very segregated, the art world. And really, when you say the art world, it already just sounds really insufferable anyway. <laughs> but I do work with museums, um, and I have done panels on like, um, media accountability. Um, so it all kind of hovers around like my interest in general, which is just, you know, making sure that people of color, particularly black people and particularly black women have like a presence. Um, and also that we don't rely on any, any like hundreds and hundreds of year old institutions to give us like any kind of worth or to legitimize our art or to I guess think that the apex of achievement is to be sort of let in to these halls in which we weren't historically even supposed to step foot in. But I also feel like there's these other really beautiful and important institutions that are being built by um, black people people diaspora-wide that are representing Black artists diaspora-wide that I would like to see a video of this kind take place in, in those places as well. Uh, I said in my article, what would, 
What would this video look like if it was at the Studio Museum in Harlem, which is one of my favorite museums in the world? I actually lived down the street from it for 10 years. Um, the Zietz Museum of Contemporary Art in Cape Town, um, or even the new um, the new African American History and Culture Museum by the Smithsonian. This last point especially resonates with an article by Paige K. Bradley entitled The Unlikely Connection Between the Carter's Apeshit and 60s French Marxists, written for Garage, in which she employs the situationist concept of the spectacle, what Guy Debord described as a pervasive social relation mediated by images, to frame the video as a historical correction of the Western assumption that houses of European culture contain the highest achievements of man and womankind. Here she is explaining the point further. So the premise was in a way like, how can we see these theories about the situation, the spectacle unfolding and what Jay-Z and Beyonce are doing, taking this huge cultural edifice and image of the Louvre and everything that it represents and changing its meaning and folding it into their own meaning, their sort of role within their industry, the music industry, which they shout out in the lyrics, you know, they're in the Louvre, but they're talking about how, like, I said no to the Super Bowl. And they, you know, they're referencing the Grammys, they're referencing these other more modern institutions of legitimation and things like the art museum kind of cataloging human history is an older form of that, an older gatekeeping institution. And a way of thinking like, okay, so they're taking this spectacle and creating a counter spectacle or creating a spectacle in parallel with this institution. And I didn't necessarily want to critique it because in a way I feel like what they're doing and the gesture they're making, it's not really my place to say this doesn't belong there. That speaks to a kind of old idea of high and low, which is not really relevant anymore and is bound up with issues of class and race. So I feel like a Marxist critique would be like, well, like nothing like escapes the spectacle and just folding more things or more different kinds of people into the spectacle doesn't do anything to free us from the overarching oppression of the spectacle. Yeah, so I don't I don't really feel like it's my place to dismiss or or criticize Jay-Z and Beyonce or black artists for using that context to stage their gesture, even though I feel like a political critique might say that this reinforces the master narrative of places like this as being the most important, when really that it's a very old, outdated cultural project at this point, this idea that, you know, we create one's an institution and we gather the best things from around the world and we put them all there. Well, then they're in a specific place and they're in a specific place that's a seat of power. And so it implies that where those things are not, are not places that matter, even if they've had things from their place taken and moved to that other place. Like, why, why should a collection of Greek art be in New York City? I don't know, because it helps bring people to New York. It helps American commerce. There's no particular reason why it should not be in Greece. Um, so that's just that that's a larger narrative about cultural property. I asked Paige whether she thought that acts like the torching of the Tuileries Palace represent an effective way of destroying or detourning the spectacle that places like the Louvre acquire. I don't think it contributes anything. I mean, if there wasn't a Louvre museum, well, well, then what? I'm in favor of returning things to their origin. And, you know, I think sort of key to the Western Museum project is the idea that things have to last for future generations um, at all costs. And I think just reality of, of climate change poses a problem to that. I can see a future where we have these museums where everything is climate controlled, everything is cared for very delicate, and we even have it now where, you know, there are works of art that are taken care of better than people are. That's not controversial to say, I don't think. And so we wonder, like, more ethically, well, is that correct? And, you know, we have so many images now of artworks, and I don't know if I really believe in the power of the original per se. People do travel to the Louvre in person, but then they take photos of it. 
So are they traveling to go and get their image of it? Or are they traveling to go and see it? And I'm also, I'm not trying to be like dismissive of, of different ways of engaging with work per se, but I do wonder, we're, we're constantly creating images of, of these things. And this is part of the spectacle that we experience and we interact with things through mediation. And it's true right now than when society spectacle was written because of digital technology. So, so in, a, in a roundabout way, I'm saying that I wonder about the lasting relevance of the Western Museum Project when we're facing a future where we're not going to be able to preserve ourselves. But this is the absurdity is that we need to preserve the works which are so valuable. As it happens, Page's remarks about the future prospects for the Western Museum Project are brought to life in a scene from Alfonso Cuaron's 2006 film Children of Men. The film explores a dystopian, not-too-distant future in which humanity is literally dying because people have become completely infertile. The result is a society pervaded by signs of hopelessness, authoritarianism and cruelty. In the scene, we hear King Crimson's song, In the Court of the Crimson King, as the protagonist Theo Farron is chauffeured through an unusually crowded and messy central London. He passes signs demanding the reader report all illegal immigrants, goes past Trafalgar Square, where, as you heard, an evangelical preacher condemns the ills of contemporary society. Theo then proceeds through the Buckingham Palace Mall to Battersea Power Station, now home to a government ministry referred to as the Ark of the Arts, which appears to have been set up to protect the world's artistic treasures. There's an immense amount of detail in this scene, much too much to list here, so much indeed, that you could easily miss the idle chit-chat before they get to the more plot-essential dialogue. Couldn't save La Pieta. Smashed up before we got there. Pretty rubbish, huh? My mum had a plastic one in the bathroom. It was a lamp. Good to see you, Theo. We got to keep Las Meninas and a few other Velasquez, but we only got a hold of two Goyas. That thing in Madrid was a real blow to art. Not to mention people. How's Martha? She's doing her animal charity thing. Sends her love. Give him a vest. Yes. Cultural theorist Mark Fisher wrote about this scene in a short essay on the role of museums in contemporary society, entitled coffee bars and internment camps, which is available on his blog, kpunk.org. In the essay's conclusion, Fisher focuses on the question Theo asks of his friend at the very end of the scene. You kill me. A hundred years from now, there won't be one sad fuck to look at any of this. What keeps you going? You know what it is, Theo? I just don't think about it. With this in mind, Fisher ponders the vital relationship between museums and contemporary culture, writing that the new defines itself in response to what is already established. But, he says, at the same time, the established has to reconfigure itself in response to the new. Tradition counts for nothing when it is no longer contested and modified. A culture that is merely preserved is no culture at all. He then points to Picasso's Guernica, which is displayed above the dining table as Theo and his friend eat. Once a howl of anguish and outrage against fascist atrocities, now a wall hanging. Like its Battersea hanging space in the film, the painting is accorded iconic status only when it is deprived of any possible function or context. He ends his essay by stating that, a culture which takes place only in museums is already exhausted. A culture of commemoration is a cemetery. No cultural object can retain its power 
when there are no longer new eyes to see it. Heidi said something very similar in my conversation with her. I'm reminded I loved this song growing up. It was a Regina Spector song, and it was about museums, and it called museums mausoleums. And I feel like it really emphasized that these images and these paintings, that's not what's alive. That's not necessarily what's current. It needs the Carters. It needs contemporary artists. It needs voices of women of color, of men of color. It needs voices of people who have not typically been within that space in order to modernize, revolutionize, and move those spaces forward and make sure that they are going into continuity. All this is to say that the carefully orchestrated unity of architectural and social order that is expressed by the Louvre, as well as the grand axis that springs from it, counts for nothing if it leaves no room for the intervention of contemporary culture. Even the most imposing buildings lose their potency if they become divorced from their context and cease to have a social function, which is something Christopher neatly summed up towards the end of our conversation at the Louvre. Uh, I think it was Goethe who said that, that uh, architecture is frozen music. And he said that because of the common element of geometry in both music and architecture. Harmony, if you will. This is an incredibly harmonious city. It's probably the most harmonious modern city that exists today. And living here in Paris is like, or visiting, it's like being in the middle of, a, let's say, a Mozart concerto, some great piece of classical music. But the problem with that is that if you listen to the same concerto over and over again, it starts to be elevator music. It's very tonic. It's very um, human. The scale of it's very accessible, but it isn't really very exciting. People often tell you that Paris is beautiful. Not so many people will tell you anymore that Paris is exciting. Great. Um, should we stop there? Sure. Um, now you want a glass of wine? <laughs> Could do, yeah.